that's it with all of that, and now we can jump into tonight's topic. And given that it's the end of the year, and uh, you're all probably worn down by the year, so I figured I could get away with pretty much anything. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to give one of those talks where I tackle one of the bigger questions and. If uh, I do it in a way that's unsatisfactory to you, you won't remember it anyway because you'll have to be dealing with holiday things <laughs> anyway. So tonight I'm going to be exploring what it is we're trying to accomplish when we mull over the meaning of life. We'll see if you like and if it's worth any pondering or you just say, well, that was weird. And you walk out. So, um, when we wonder, what is the meaning of my existence? Why am I here? What does this mean? Of course, it's a question that's framed in language, and we first have to look and understand what exactly the question is asking. By which I mean, the word meaning actually can point to uh, quite a number of different questions. For example... Red light means stop. This, uh, fingers in the shape of a V, means peace in many cultures. One finger, you know what that means. So, if we're talking about that kind of meaning, then life simply is a symbol for something else. In which case, we would simply run to the dictionary, which would inform us that life is that period between birth and death. <laughs> The quality distinguish a vital, functional being from a dead body. Now, I don't think any of you, by me saying that, have had the, your question, if you ever ask that question, what's the meaning of, of life, I don't think you'd be satisfied with that answer. So I think we can safely rule out that when we wonder what the meaning of life is, we're not asking what life is a symbol of. Likewise, the word meaning can also point towards cause and effect. For instance, global warming means the sea levels will rise. One thing causes the other. Means can sometimes point to cause and effect. Now, by that nature, if we're asking what is the cause and effect, what does life cause, we can very easily answer that. Death. Death is the inevitable result of life. If you are alive, therefore you will die. <laughs> I don't think any of you were satisfied with that either. After all, most people, when I ask the question, what is the meaning of my life, would not be satisfied by having somebody tapping them on the shoulder. It means you're going to expire one day. So, there are two other possibilities we could be getting at. We could be getting at the destiny that mean implies, or the hidden purpose that mean the word can imply. So let's look at destiny. You and I were meant to be. We were meant to go to France. Meant, in that case, implies there's some destiny. And so, from that perspective, life, the meaning of life, would mean what was our destiny. Now, a lot of people actually do, when they ask what is the meaning of life, they do, in fact, ask what is the pre-existing purpose, the destiny that I was put on this planet to achieve. In many cultures, in fact, they interpret the question that way. They believe that either a god or there's a, 
uh, a force of nature, were several gods that before their birth put them into existence, put all of us into existence, to achieve a single purpose. For example, uh, in some uh, Hindu beliefs, uh, the god... Uh, uh, in ancient times split apart into thousands of different parts and each of us have one of those parts and the meaning of life is simply to remember that we have forgotten that we are part of that sort of universal consciousness. This kind of meaning has no individual characteristics. It's there before you're born. Everything you do in your life has nothing to affect your meaning. Uh, finally, for most of us Westerners, that kind of approach doesn't satisfy. Why? Because we are all rugged individualists, and we are very much interested in what our thoughts and actions point towards. So when we ask, what is the meaning of life, we're really pointing towards, what do all of my thoughts and intentions and actions boil down to what has been the point of it all, the things that I've done, all the point of all these experiences. And this is a very, of course, contemporary 20th century Western philosophical perspective. Sartre validated this rather obvious uh, question when he said, existence precedes essence. From the Sartrean view, we are all thrown into existence without any purpose whatsoever. We have absolutely nothing to achieve, nothing to do. There is absolutely no reason for our existence. And of course, this uh, belief naturally came about right after World War I, when there was a great deal of dissatisfaction and alienation. So the idea is that there's no God or no force that's pushing us into existence, that in fact we exist and we have to create the meaning of our life through our choices, through our intentions, through the actions and the thoughts that we cultivate. And this, of course, uh, is very satisfactory for most of us Westerners because it squarely puts the onus on each individual to actualize what their life is pointing towards, whether it has a true deep meaning or whether we are leading, let's say, shallow uh, lives that are not filled with deep investigation. If this is the case, then for our life to have meanings, our actions generally must point in one direction or another. If our actions are random and completely chaotic, then our lives, by definition, would be meaningless because random, chaotic uh, actions and thoughts would not have very much meaning to them, certainly. So for our lives to have any meaning, we have to act and think in accordance with some kind of principle or some kind of direction. Now let's say you agree with me so far. If you don't, you can bring it up during the time we, we converse. So we might ask, why do we give a crap if our lives have meaning or not. Many joyful experiences in life seem to be utterly, utterly meaningless. When we feel really happy, we're children, we skip down the street. Uh, dogs 
experience great joy without very much meaning. In fact, there was recently a wonderful fMRI scan done with in Hungary where they actually trained over, I think, 20 dogs, border collies and great Danes. I don't know why those two breeds. But they trained them to sit still for eight minutes so that they could do fMRI scans, which are utterly painless. Um, and while they did it, they exposed dogs to their favorite toys or to toys they'd never been exposed to before, the sound of their owner's voice versus the sound of strangers, and they found that dogs pretty much have the same type of emotions that we do. They experience joy, they experience contentment and fear and anxiety, yet I don't think many of us would argue that dogs sit around and ponder the meaning of life. <laughs> Maybe they do, but we have very little evidence pointing towards that. So why do we worry about our lives having meaning? Why is it a question that even comes up to us? I'd like to propose an answer tonight. My answer is that we worry about the meaning of our lives because we are inherently social beings. And that the concern about the meaning of our life is, in essence, a profoundly social concern. And I'll hopefully go on to prove that to you, um, or if not, I'll do some sleight of hand to make it seem like I've proven it to you. <laughs> so we know, without much doubt, from the work of uh, Lieberman and uh, uh, so many other contemporary, Graziano, so many other contemporary neuroscientists, that the brain largely developed uh, its most modern iteration to reward connection. The entire right hemisphere of the brain is largely concerned with maintaining secure connections with other individuals. In fact, we are so set up to seek connection with each other that the same exact region of your right hemisphere, the dorsal anterior cingulate, that creates physical pain also creates emotional pain when you feel socially rejected and socially ostracized. That's its two functions, to highlight physical pain and to highlight social pain. This is because, well, let me read one neuroscientist, Lieberman. The similarity of the social and physical pain mechanisms means that social connections are as great a lifelong need for us humans is food and warmth. Evolution designed the modern brain for reaching out and interacting with others. Social adaptations are essential to making us the most successful species on Earth. And of course, we know that. We don't run fast, we don't swim fast, we don't have shells or claws, we don't fight particularly well, we don't scamper up trees or dig holes and dive into them with any great alacrity. But what we do do is we do connect with great efficiency and interact and form alliances that allow us to act in unison and ward off threats. That is the single sole advantage of the human species. So our ability to form social alliances, which is both based on thought and emotion, based on intellectual understanding and emotional connection is what makes us such a successful species and it's also what creates so many of the concerns that we ponder about. 
So along with the emotional rewards pushing us, all the emotional pain that punishes us for feeling disconnected, and all of the positive emotions which are released when we feel uh, connected, such as elation and joy and happiness, we also have another skill that makes us profoundly social and profoundly capable of deep connections. Human brain beings, believe it or not, are to a certain degree capable of what is called mind reading. Now, mind reading is not some extrasensory perception. It's actually the ability to look at another human being, to take in their physical uh, gestures, their tone of voice, the expression on their face, and even though they may not be acting or saying anything that points to an emotion, we can figure out their emotional state by taking in nonverbal cues. Human beings communicate a lot, not just by language and not just by actual actions, but the entire way they hold their bodies, the entire way they either look at us in the eye or look away, the entire way they, the entire tone of the voice, the minutia that we signal to one another. We can actually understand each other's motivations and intentions by looking at the way each other move, hold our bodies. And we're doing this countless of times a day. We live in a city made up of, uh, I don't know, I think by now we're somewhere between eight and nine million people. And in the course of the day, you're actually running or walking by potentially hundreds of complete strangers. And yet you don't you're not always in a rear with your tails up and your, you know, your fingers out. And you are looking at the people around you and very quickly making snap judgments about their intentions. And when somebody comes up to you out of the blue and asks you a question, you immediately start to evaluate before thought whether to relax and answer them or whether to step back because something seems wrong. So we all have this capability. And in fact, this has been pointed out to us by many neuro neuroscientists. The famous V.S. Ramachandran said that the interior cingulate neurons that respond when my thumb is being poked will also fire when I watch yours being poked. And I can also use my mirror neurons to observe and feel your underlying emotions. That's why 20% of the processing neuro neural uh, connections are made up of mirror neurons, which allow us to mimic and feel and connect deeply with other people. We understand the emotions and intentions of others because we can deeply connect with their underlying states of being. Interestingly enough, uh, not only has uh, psychologists like Fanaghi and Kohut and Alan Shore pointed to the ability of the mother and the child ability to read each other's minds, in essence, creates the core bond that is the foundation of psychological health. But the Buddha pointed <laughs> towards this 2,500 years ago. There's actually a word in Pali, parachita vijanana. I don't encourage you to try to say that aloud. Uh, I had to practice that at home a couple of times for it to roll off the tongue with such smoothness, uh, which means inferring the mind states of others by looking at them and taking them in. The Buddha even said that when one has achieved a 
mind of such awareness and such freedom from agitation that one is greatly capable of reading what's on the minds of other people. So we're all concerned with how other people look at us and see our intentions and what they think our motivations and what they think we're all about because we're constantly doing that to other people as well. We're aware that we're constantly evaluating other people and we are aware that other people are evaluating us and taking in what they think are our motivations and intentions. Even the self, the way we construct our identity, is a profoundly social construct. Rather than distinguishing us from other people and promoting selfishness, the self has been shown by uh, a number of neuroscientists, including the wonderful Michael Graziano, as a profoundly social mechanism a mechanism that aims to have us fit in with others rather than to separate and individuate ourselves. When we wonder, who am I really? We're not trying to differentiate ourselves. We're actually asking ourselves, what are my characteristics that will make me fit in to the world around me and be acceptable to other people? And what are the characteristics I have that other people will reject that I have to worry about? So when we mull about who am I, we're really agonizing over how well will I fit into the tribe of people around me. So at this point, we're arriving at the, I think, the uh, beginning of the core message that I'm trying to uh, import. When we wonder about what does life mean, we're actually asking ourselves, or expressing the concern, how will others discern who I am and will they accept me? How will I fit in? Our life's the question, what does my life mean, is not a singular internal question that evaluates things that is purely selfish. In fact, it's a deeply social concern, wondering about how well we will be accepted by other people. What have we done that will uh, be read by others and acceptable to other people? Interestingly enough, the World Happiness Report did a massive study where they asked people, were they content in life or not, and whether they thought their life had meaning or not. And the ones who reported the greatest meaning were the ones who expressed that their lives had the most close social connections and the greatest degree of altruism in their actions. Whereas the people who reported the least meaning had the least amount of social connections and felt that their work or their livelihood had very little altruistic <laughs> quality to it. Now, this should not be... Um, at all surprising. There was a big uh, neuroscience um, project that was done in Japan with over 20, 20 separate neuroscientists, and they did a massive amount of studies, and it's called the Comprehensive Neural Networks for Guilty Feelings, and they found out <laughs> that uh, all human beings have very deeply etched neural networks to provide guilty feelings <laughs> that are widespread and include everything from the midbrain 
to the body sensing parts, to the frontal lobe, especially the self-centered part of the brain. And they propose that this deeply ingrained guilt mechanism, this guilt circuit, was there to keep us socially engaged. And when people ponder what is the meaning of life, if they come up with negative evaluations in fMRI scans, that circuit is activated because there's a sense of uh, not having achieved or acted in ways that other that would benefit the tribe. The pro-social tribal circuits of the brain are very deep. Babies, babies have been shown in studies to universally punish and dislike puppet shows where the puppets act selfishly and to feel happy and content when there's, they're shown a puppet show where the puppets act altruistically to each other. So given that it seems that there are some pretty deep wiring to promote social behavior, the question might be, why do so many of us act selfishly? <laughs> why do we act in ways where we put our own needs first? Why do we so often in life not worry about whether our actions are pro-tribal or not? This is because well before the brain evolved to create all of these pro-social, pro-tribal circuits, before it got to that, it already had hard-installed something called the midbrain, which doesn't give a damn about connecting with other people and is simply all about survival of the self alone, my survival. And that midbrain, which has the amygdala and the hypothalamus, is completely uh, a very powerful region of the brain. It controls much of the dopamine. The dopamine, by the way, is the pleasurable neurotransmitter that is the goal of every cocaine and speed addict. It is a very powerful tool that makes you feel powerful and uh, unstoppable. And when you get that iPad or you get that raise or you say, damn other people, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to ride in my Hummer and eat my factory farmed beef burger and I'm going to, I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to do. You get a big, nice boost of dopamine, which lasts about 25 minutes in your brain, especially your left hemisphere, which is the part that's worried more about accumulation and acquiring happiness than connecting for happiness. So, we're at war with ourselves. We have one lobe that is deeply concerned with acquiring and accumulating happiness and symbolic concerns, and it's largely the left hemisphere feeds off of dopamine, and the right hemisphere is worried about our connections with the tribe and other people, and it actually works off of something called serotonin. Serotonin you might have heard of. It's actually the chief aim of almost all of the antidepressants that most people are put on because our connections with each other are so poor. So serotonin, unfortunately, doesn't have the quick powerful boost of dopamine. It's long-lasting, but it's very much more subtle. So the war is between the short-term boost 
of self-centered, selfish acts, greedy and fear-driven, versus the long-term benefits of altruistic self and other connection. And this, it so happens, points us directly to the foundation of everything the Buddha said. He said that all of the spiritual practice is about realizing that greed and self-centered fear pushes us towards long-term unhappiness, whereas altruism, self-care, and concern of others pushes us towards emotions that are beneficial and are positive. So, the meaning of life, essentially, is the concern, have I been letting the self-centered circuits of my brain override the pro-tribal circuits that reward connection? Have I been giving into fear or been giving my time over to connecting deeply and well with those around me? I'll, fa- I'll finish up by quoting the Buddha when he was asked, what is the truth by the Kalamas? And he answered, when you seek the truth, don't rely on what others claim. Don't rely on myths or traditions or holy books or inference, or what passes for common sense, or probability, or even the thought, well, this is what my teacher says, so it must be right. No, when you see for yourselves that intentions and acts are skillful and and are blameless because when you act them out, they lead to your welfare and the welfare of others, you will see in the long term that you are happy. And this is the way you should build your practice. So when you see for yourself which intentions and thoughts lead to the long-term benefit of yourself and others, that is the foundation of your practice. And that, I would propose, is the meaning of your life.